will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So because of the lighting in here, you can hardly see that um, that image up there, but you have it on your bulletin. We are in a sermon series um, entitled, And He Shall Be Called. And these words came from uh, the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah said, He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Um, and many other words. And so we chose four 
um, five, if you count uh, at the barn, Christmas Eve at the barn, we chose five of these words that we thought kind of were illuminated in the Christmas story to guide us through this season. And so today we are on these words, son of God, son of man. A few years ago, I went for a long walk with a friend of mine, Heather, and she had asked me to go on this walk because she said she just had so much on her mind. She needed to kind of walk and talk things out. She was working um, to get her PhD at this point in time, and she started to tell me about her mentor, her PhD supervisor. Heather said that her supervisor had been so kind to her over the years, introducing her to all kinds of people, lead, leading people in her field, uh, her, she, getting her slots to present at conferences that she never thought she, could, she would ever be chosen for. Um, and Heather was super grateful. But now her mentor's behavior was getting a bit odd. Heather said that she knew her mentor's marriage had come to an end, and after the breakup, everything just got a bit strange. Her PhD mentor, who was in her 50s, started dressing as if she were Heather's age in her late 20s and asking Heather for fashion advice. And Heather said, and now she seems to want to be invited to all of the events and parties I go to now with my PhD friends and she shows up at places without being asked uh, just because i mentioned that i was going in a casual conversation and she asks about my boyfriend all the time and I, i'm beginning to feel like this is a bit creepy she said and i said it sounds to me like she wants to be like you heather like what do you mean she wants to be like me why on earth would she want to be like me She's famous, like she is this established scholar. She's the big fish. And I'm just this minnow in this pond. And at this point, I had to stop us from walking because I needed to look at her as I, as I told her. I knew that this was going to, to take, her, take her back a bit, that it would unsettle her, her world. Look at your life. You are beautiful, you are young, you have a healthy career, you have a super fun-loving, cool boyfriend who will probably end up becoming your husband within the next two years, a boyfriend who looks forward to raising a family with you, who, care, who cares, <laughs> who published the best book on this and gets the keynote speaker for that. This woman doesn't care about those things deep down, Heather. She wants what you have. And in her misery, she somehow got it in her head that the closer she gets to you, emotionally and physically to you, the more she's going to become like you. Maybe turn the clock back some years on her life. And so Heather was horrified, and she said, I've, I've never realized that people think like that. And I, said, that's, and I said, that's because you're different than most people. She was. Um, <clears throat> especially most people around that kind of competitive, envi competitive environment of a university. Your life isn't consumed by envy, I told her. A university is this huge chemical experiment in envy. <laughs> Everybody's comparing themselves to each other all the time. Everybody's constantly coveting to the acclaim or the security or the, the whatever the, the next, the, the next adjunct role might be whoever is going to be their next, uh, their next, whoever they're going to mentor, the recognition, the salary, the family life, or the emotional balance of offices and with windows and title and parking space and, you know, 
annual research rewards and promotions. And so Heather is completely bewildered. And she said, well, what do I do about it then? And I said, you can do absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do. I wonder which person in this story you most closely relate to. Or I wonder if you think I was exaggerating when I talked about envy. Um, over the years as a pastor, as I've gotten to know myself better and gotten to know others, um, I would say that envy is the most widespread of all sins. Almost all of us look at one another and think, if only I had her looks, or her brains, or his children, or his wife, or her job, or if I lived in their house, or if I had her poise, or his charm, or her courage, or his faith, right? This is what today's scripture invites us into. The gospel reading invites us to read the Christmas story now through the lens of envy. The wanting what you don't have. And jealousy, that desperate anxiety to keep what you do have, right? I once invited a small group of a dozen people to gather around a Christmas figurine nativity set, somewhat like this one, except not as um, accurate. Um, did you notice these people here? These, this is a really lovely um, set. Um, they are the right skin tone, so that's, that's something. It was, they were way more white in this nativity um, scene that, that we were gathering around. And I asked each person there to take one figure out of the stable and tell everyone in the room why they'd chosen that figure. And one person chose the donkey. We have no animals up here today. But one person chose the donkey, and he said, I know, I know I'm not the brightest one in the shed, but I like to stay close to Jesus. I, I kind of want to hang around Jesus. One woman chose Balthazar, Balthazar um, who's the first wise man, and um, who brought the gold. And she said, I, I, long to make, I long to make beautiful things. She was someone in the church who did altarscapes like this. She's like, I love to make beautiful things, and, and I love to give them to Jesus. E even when, you know, Jesus may not care about my beautiful things. That is my, that's my way I worship. Another woman chose one of the shepherds. And she said, I feel I've spent most of my life on the hillsides. And somehow church has felt like Bethlehem to me. Way too cozy and, and settled for me. And so I spent a long time in my life away from church. My life is wild and outdoors. And, but every now and again, I want to come close to the mystery, like the shepherds did that night, like I'm doing now. But then I'm... A man of very few words and many noble actions stepped up and he picked up Joseph. <clears throat> and he had some difficult things to say. And so he didn't look at the rest of us while he was speaking. He was looking down the whole time. And he looked at the small wooden figurine in his hand and he said, I've chosen Joseph because for several years I felt I was Joseph. My wife became a Christian a long time before I did. And all the while, she kept talking about this Holy Spirit character. She was 
a lot more interested in this Holy Spirit character than she ever was about me, that's for sure. And later I came to be a Christian myself and I, I sort of understood. But, but I identify with Joseph. Mary's expecting a baby, and I'm supposed to believe this story about an angel and the Holy Spirit, and I've, I've heard of, you know, he made me do it, or I don't, I don't know what came over me, but this story is ridiculous. I spent all these years envying the Holy Spirit and, and looking jealously at my wife, and I kind of wonder whether maybe Joseph did too. Joseph isn't center stage in the Christmas story. Oh, may he feel jealous and envious. If you and I manage to conjure up envy in our obscure and ordinary lives, how much more so Joseph when he's up against the Holy Spirit? But what does he do? Because he seems to give us clues, jealous and envious as we are, that's what we do, as to how we should model our lives on his. And all that is under the surface of this name, we give Jesus, Son of God. Matthew gives us the basics of the story without accompanying sentiment. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child, the Holy Spirit. Of course, an, an unexpected pregnancy is this deeply confusing thing for anyone now and back then. An unexpected pregnancy has this way of opening the door to a whole lot of things that occupy our imagination but are really hard to talk about. And it trespasses into this like place of sens sensitivity from those who'd love to be pregnant but who aren't to those who's, who's leap to judgment, probably masks a more complex history of their own. All of which lead to these hesitant words we normally say, well, I guess congratulations then. Which feels like an exclamation and kind of a question mark all in one. But add to that, the tiny problem that this woman's husband is quite sure he's not the father of this child, and that the historic penalty for adultery is death by stoning, and all of a sudden this becomes this social catastrophe on a grand scale, and no one has a clue what to say. I guess, congratulations then? Usually we see it from Mary's point of view. The vulnerability of a teenage girl in a world that focuses so much of its fascination and anger on sexual transgression. But what about through Joseph's eyes? I want us to look at, at these three stages that Joseph seems to move through in response to Mary's news. First, did you notice the first thing it said, what Matthew told us about Joseph? Did you notice that? that he was a righteous man. In other words, Joseph was a keeper of the law. Anyone concerned for justice has got to have a lot of sympathy for Joseph. He, he's done the right thing. He's gone through the formal betrothal. He's waited for his, 
this girl to get old enough where he could marry her. He is preparing for, for when she'll come to his home and to be his wife. And we talk a lot about justice in our society. But this is an illustration of where being just doesn't come close to dealing with the problem. Justice suggests the young girl should be exposed and humiliated, jo Joseph be exonerated, and no doubt some financial accommodation made to recognize the damage this has done to his well-being and his reputation from this public disgrace. But what if Joseph loved Mary? What if he was jealous for her? Not, not as a piece of his property, but as, as the love of his life. What if he didn't stop loving Mary, whatever, whatever she might have been up to? No money or, or, or public humiliation could give him what he really wanted. What he, he wanted was her. Justice is an important word in our society, but I wonder how often, as for Joseph, all our striving for it still fails to give us what we really want. Joseph knows this. And so his second stage, yes, he's righteous, but Matthew says that Joseph was unwilling to expose Mary to public disgrace. And so he planned to dismiss her quietly, it says. And I, I don't think we should underestimate the, the tortured human emotions buried within this simple description. A lot of us quite happily sing songs that say that Jesus took the sins of the whole world on his shoulders on the cross, but we wouldn't dream of shouldering a single sin of someone else's on our own. Let me say that again. We wouldn't dream of shouldering someone else's sin, but we love that Jesus shouldered ours. This is the hidden and unrewarded part of love, Joseph shoulders the social shame of Mary and looks a fool. And even though he's done absolutely nothing wrong, I wonder if you know what, it fe what that feels like. Some, somebody has hurt you or wounded you or taken advantage of you, but for their sake and for their salvation, you carry the shame on yourself and ne never breathe a word about it even when you endure their name being praised and honored around you? Oh, that feels awful. The second word Joseph seeks is mercy. The first, justice. The second, mercy. In his righteousness, he, like Jesus, doesn't choose justice, but rather mercy. He's a righteous man who knows what is right, and he chooses what is wrong. I wonder when you see or know a person facing public disgrace, does your heart jump to justice or to mercy? Do you eagerly devour the headlines that proclaim righteous indignation and groveling humiliation? Do you think, look, at least there's someone in the world who's worse than me? Or do you think it's, it's about time one of those cheats or jerks or jackasses got, got what they deserve, finally? I wonder whether the church has got so carried away with righteousness and just, justice that it's forgotten what Joseph shows us so vividly, that mercy outweighs justice. The truth is that any of us, if everything about our lives was exposed 
to public scrutiny would be up for humiliation and disgrace, right? And begging for mercy and understanding. If only like Joseph, mercy was our reflex rather than justice and vengeance. And now we move to the third phase for Joseph's journey. The one that brings us to the heart of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Like any other person in distress, Joseph does the most sensible thing. He goes to sleep. I'm going to sleep on it. But like his namesake in Genesis, he dreams. And, and this Joseph trusts his dreams. And in his, this dream, he, this angel of the Lord tells him who the father of Mary's child truly is and what this new baby will one day do and be. And our re first reaction might be to say, oh, oh, good. I was, I was a bit worried for a moment. I was a bit worried there about Mary. Um, she's going to get out of this whole thing and how Joseph was going to endure the exposure and the embarrassment, let alone his jealousy over his betrothed. But now I see, now it's all God's doing. And it's part of this big plan to save everyone. Oh, good. But don't miss the, the human part of this story. He'll, he'll never be a father. He'll never be the father. And this is the crucial moment of the story for Joseph. This is the crucial moment of the story for you and me. This is the moment when we have to decide whether we're going to be a righteous person, a person of justice and perhaps even mercy, or whether we're actually going to be a Christian. Now is the moment when, G when Joseph chooses which story he's going to be in. The jealousy story goes like this. I want to be the only person in Mary's life. The justice story goes like this. I shouldn't have to pay for other people's mistakes. Even the mercy story goes something like this. We, we all have mistakes, and I love Mary and have nothing to gain from exposing her, and so let's just wrap this whole story up with a generous and gentle bow. But there's another story. It's called the grace story. And it's the grace story that's at the heart of this name, Son of God. To say that Jesus is the Son of God for Joseph, to admit this, for Joseph to admit that this baby will never be his son, but is the Son of God, is to plunge himself into this grace story, to plunge ourselves into the grace story, to say that Jesus is the Son of God, is to say, I've realized that I've never been the main character of my story. This was always a story about God and how God was being present, how God was saving me. It's, it's just that I never realized it until now. It's amazing, I get, to be, I get to be a part of this child being born. For Joseph, I get to be the godfather to this child whose father is God. For us, I get to be a part of having this child born anew every year in my heart and I know my life will never be normal again and I know no one will ever fully understand my side of the story and I know Mary is one of the most special people there ever was and I will always feel small beside her but I want to give I want to live my life open to God's spirit I want to live a life that's always ready to be turned upside down by God I want to be a person at whom others will point and say that's what grace can do in someone's life. And so Joseph chose the grace story. He could have chose the righteousness story. 
He could have chose the justice story. could have chose the jealous story. He could have chose the mercy story. But he chose the grace story. And the rest of the story is what we call the gospel now. Because of that, we don't all get to choose whether we're going to be the godfather of the Son of God. To say that Jesus is the Son of God is to realize that you're not the main character of your own story. It's to admit that we all face moments that challenge us to choose which story we're going to be in. Maybe you're feeling that a lot right now. Maybe you're facing injustice or illness or disappointment or, or betrayal or financial crisis. Or you have a big question, a big decision up ahead that you've got to make. Which story is going to be your story? Will it be envy and jealousy? That you want what other people have and keep tied of what you have? Will it be righteousness and justice that you desire to do the proper thing always, even if it's not going to give you what you deep down really want? Will it be mercy? Will it be taking on to yourself the sins of others and recognizing that fragile humanity in us all? Or will it possibly, just possibly be grace? Grace that, that lets God take over your story. Grace that makes you realize you were always a small part in a story that was truly about God. Grace that melts envy and heals jealousy and transcends justice and exudes mercy. Grace that turns your whole life into this worship of the God revealed in Jesus. Joseph chose grace. And when he said, this son is not mine, but God's. And in so doing, the son of God also became the son of all mankind so that we might see ourselves in this story and also choose grace. Would you pray with me? God, we come this third Sunday of Advent to align our story with yours. If we have been scrolling through our Facebook feeds and, and really envying what others have, why doesn't my Christmas feel like that? Why doesn't my Christmas tree look like that? Why doesn't my budget have room for that? Why doesn't my family seem to be that happy? We lay that, we lay that story aside, God. Or we read the news and it makes us feel like better people, more worthwhile people, to know that we are living our life right and that others are failing miserably. And so if we've chosen the story of righteousness as, as Joseph could have, that we know the law rather than, than mercy, we put that story aside. Maybe that's happening in our own lives, in our own stories, that someone has wounded us so badly because they just did so much wrong to us. I wonder what mercy would look like, God. Maybe we have chose the road of mercy 
because we don't really want to deal with any hard realities. We don't want to struggle through grace because it requires confession. So if we've chosen the easy story, the wipe the slate clean, forgive everyone, forget everything story, we put that aside too, God. And today, like Joseph, we choose the grace story. The story that says that God finds us to be the most important thing in all the world. And for our hearts to be united with God's is the most important thing God could ever want and long for. Why God is being born, but also the story that says that we are not the center of that story, but it's only by God's grace. It's by your grace, Jesus. And it's when we realize we're not the center of our story that all that false happiness falls away and we know what true joy looks like. And so we pray that prayer that you taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.